My name is Steve Gilman, and for decades I've been helping brands engage with their audiences. On this podcast, we'll connect the dots in the fast-paced world of branding by talking with entrepreneurs, leaders, and marketers on the front lines of telling brand stories. On today's episode of Brand Story, we're talking with business leader George Pace on why you should hire people more talented than you, the secret to opening doors, and why you should listen more than you talk. Welcome to the Brand Story Podcast. I am your host, Steve Gilman, and today we are talking to George Pace. Uh, George is the former president and CEO of Rocco Incorporated. Prior to Rocco, his career spanned 17 years with RJR Nabisco, where he held senior management positions in sales, marketing, and strategic planning at both Nabisco and Del Monte Foods. He currently serves as a board member for Blue Vigil, LLC, Shenandoah Valley Organic, and the Rainbird Corporation. He also serves on several advisory boards for Dynamic Aviation, Summit Community Bank, and Shenandoah Growers. And he's the founder of the Shenandoah Valley Angel Investors. Uh, he also served in the public sector, which many of you may know him from, on the Harrisonburg Electric Commission, Harrisonburg Planning Commission, and the City Council as the Vice Mayor, and so many nonprofit boards that I think we could be here all afternoon if I listed them all. <laughs> And I got to work with you at RMH uh, when you were on the board of RMH, and it was a pleasure. Um, so, George, thanks so much for being here today. It's a pleasure, Steve. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too, sir. I had such a great experience working with you at RMH during the the rebrand for the hospital and health campus. And then I know you were intimately involved in the transition for the community hospital to be part, in, part of Centera. And that was a very positive move for this community. So thank you for all you did around that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot. A lot a lot in a short period, relatively short period of time. Too. It was. It was a lot of change and a lot of like a lot of really positive change, but I don't think many people understand, you know, I was involved in it, so I understand the importance of with healthcare reform, small community hospitals being part of bigger systems so that they can provide the care to the community the community needs. And I think you saw that early, you know. Well, I um also, I was thinking about this last night in the, uh, you know, we were working on the advertising campaign and then almost overnight, although you didn't realize all that was going on, uh, we moved into, uh, I would say, a fairly intensive communications program, both internally and externally. And we did a lot of work on that. And that, I'm sure you weren't envisioning that. Uh, Six months earlier. No, I thought I was. I thought I, we'd get the big advertising campaign for the new campus up, and then you know get a breather. But we went straight into the communications campaign after that. And that was pretty intense. It was intense. That's where I got this gray hair. <laughs> the good news is we still got hair. I know we still got hair. We're still working. Yeah, I, you were you you provided some amazing leadership in those in those days, and I it was just an absolute joy to work with you and and Carter and Jim and. Uh, so thank you for that experience. Well, there are a lot of good people. Oh, for sure. Yeah, one of the people that uh, I interviewed for this podcast recently was Carrie Willits, um, who went on to work at Sunterra, and now she's a regional president for uh, WellSpan Health up in Pennsylvania and supervises five hospitals and outpatient centers. She's pretty amazing. A lot, a lot of those good people have gone on to bigger and better and amazing things. Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear. Let me just start. I'm going to ask you questions. All of these are just your perspective. You've accomplished a lot in your career. I mean, a lot. Like even just going through your resume and everything, all the boards you've been on in your early career in marketing, what do you think you're the most proud of in your career? I think from a managerial perspective, most proud of um, leading Rocco Enterprises through probably the toughest period of time in the history of the company. 
it was in the mid 90s. We were facing um, unprecedented cost increases in grain, corn, and soybean meal, uh, an inability to raise prices because of excess supply in the marketplace. And, uh, and we, we, it was tough. Um, but we, we got our lenders to stand behind us. We were talking to them every week, I think. Uh, but more importantly, we had, um, we were able to galvanize the employees to realize this is a, you know, this is, we got to make this work or it's over. And, um, that was a very intensive communications process that went on and on and on because it never stopped through that whole period of time. But we pulled it off and, um, and we came out of it stronger on the other side than we'd ever been before. Yeah, I remember that time. That was the most intense period of time from a management, management challenge standpoint in terms of trying to make the right decisions, getting everyone in the same boat rowing together. Uh, but we did it. And once you do that, once you can actually get everybody moving in the same direction with the same commitment, it's it's truly extraordinary what you can accomplish as an organization. It's very difficult to do, which is why I'm proud of it. Um, usually you end up having people going in different directions and I understand all that. But uh, we actually use the, uh, the crisis as a way to get everybody in the same boat. And uh, I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget all the people that helped me and help themselves at the same time to accomplish uh, what turned out to be a great success. Yeah, I remember that time, and I remember the communication coming from Rocco and and being very impressed with how the company handled itself through that entire because it was it was like an ongoing rolling crisis, and you all did come out uh, much stronger. And there was no chatter, there was no no nobody jumping off the boat, and it was it was a real testament to great leadership. At that time, um, we were a huge employer in the community, like the biggest. The biggest, yeah, I remember. Uh, at least in Harrisonburg. And um, when you consider the employees, employee families, the uh, farmers, the, uh, the associated services that support the organization, um, you realize if you don't make the right moves, it's not just going to affect the company. It's going to dramatically affect the community. And, and so um, that was the most intense thing I've ever been through. Yeah, I bet. But as I said, we came out on, on, on the winning side. And um, and just it's amazing how many people stepped up and did all the things that I asked them to do, which was a lot of stuff. It's a, it is amazing how much capacity people have. When, when, if there's good leadership and good communication, how they can band together and, and go through change together, even if everyone's at a slightly different point. I've seen it, and it's pretty extraordinary. I, I personally believe, and, and this reinforced it, I've always believed that uh, each of us have far more potential than we realize. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the upside's big, really big. Uh, it's just that sometimes we're not challenged enough to find out what it is. Yeah. And I've had that experience myself. Like, I mean, just the example you gave from RMH of going through, like thinking we had just gotten this huge campaign done and then plunging right into a very complex communication situation. You would think, 
I don't know if I can do this right now. You know, this is a lot. And then you do it. And it was an amazing experience working with everyone from Virginia Beach and everyone from Sentara and the, our, you know, our team at RMH. And it was extraordinary, you know? Yeah, it's uh, there, there's a lesson there, I think, for everybody. Yeah, for sure. So in your in your incredibly long career, like I, when I look at your career and, you know, I've I've been a fly on the wall of your career for a lot of it. What what are you most surprised by? Well, there have been a lot of surprises. Uh, <laughs> Quite a maybe few. That's, that's the whole point is that uh, no matter how well you plan and how well you think you've got your act together, uh, the what you don't know, you don't know. Is, and and that's a very important thing to realize because as we, I think when we're younger, we think we're bulletproof and we know everything. I, at one time, I had that attitude, and, and I'm not necessarily – you know, you change over time because experiences. And I think that um, it's very important to realize that you don't know everything. And that you, which requires you to you do two things when that happens. One, you, you figure out what it is that you don't, that you're not very good at, because no one's good at everything. And you make sure you have people around you that are really good at whatever it is you're not good at. And then the second thing is uh, you've always got to be focused externally. People become uh, very inwardly focused because it's something they can control and they like doing that. It's all in the internal process. And I get all that. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the fact of the matter is that the competitive nature of business is such that if you don't keep a focus externally, um, and spot the surprise before it becomes a crisis, you're in trouble. And that's, I think that's one of the major things that I've learned along the way, uh, which, I don't know, years ago, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. I think when people are at the beginning of their careers or at the, even sometimes at the prime of their career, they don't have the wisdom to know, I better get some people around me that are, good at things that I'm just not good at. And so that when that crisis or that surprise does come, I've got a team in place that's complimentary. You can't be threatened by people that are better than you at different things. And I think, I think that's incredibly important. I've seen people who won't hire people uh, that they know are really good because they view them as a threat. Yeah. Um, you want to get those sort of people out of your organization as quickly as you can. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, I agree but, with but that. But it does happen. It happens it quite does. often. Unfortunately, and in leadership, I think it's incredibly important to to hire people that scare you, you know, people that will challenge you. And certainly the great organizations do that, the ones that I've worked for. And I've seen you do that. I've seen Carter Melton's of the world do that and the Jim Krause's do that. And I think it's it's a testament to great leadership. So a good part of your career was focused on marketing. Um, and how do you think that experience in marketing – and maybe this speaks to that external focus. How do you think that that informed all of the work you did with corporate boards and advisory boards? Well, uh, two things I would say on that. One, um, when you work in consumer uh, products, branding, uh, marketing is the center of the wheel. And it's responsible for the brand. And it's also responsible for communicating to all the other functional areas in the company of what we're trying to accomplish and reaching out for their assistance to help accomplish that. 
So you're setting a vision for the brand. And then, which is most of the time, that's not that hard, but getting everybody else to buy into it and help support you when you don't have necessarily direct responsibility for them, their peers. And you most of the time in large organizations, you've got other brands vying for the same resources. So you got to figure out how to manage through all that. Well, when you do that, especially over several different brands, which fortunately I've had the opportunity to do, you see certain patterns of behavior within organizations that repeat themselves. And with that experience, you figure out ways to um, find the right way to push the right button for different people, because all people are different in terms of what motivates them. So you can't use the same technique on everyone. Um, and the same thing applies, not surprisingly, if you're in a, a board setting. Uh, and I've been in there both ways. I've been in there as the uh, chief executive officer trying to get approval for whatever it was I'm trying to get approval for. And I've been on the board side listening to chief executive officers trying to uh, push my buttons to get approval. And so over time, you start to see human behavior repeat itself over and over, regardless of the setting, and you're prepared for it. And you can uh, prepare in advance uh, your narrative that you think carry your point of view. But at the same time, and I constantly remind people of this, that can be dangerous because it can, uh, you may miss something that could change your mind. I have this thing I talk about. There's three types of listening. There's, and I, you're going to hear this, passive listening. That's the person that acts like they're listening, but they're actually thinking about something else. And uh, in many ways, they're pretty harmless, except you got to go back and repeat what you said about a dozen times and slap them in the face, and finally they get it. Yeah, been there. there. There's the active listener, which is the person you want on your team. They're the person that... They probably have a point of view about things, but they're open to hearing more information and they're opening, open to change their mind if they learn something they didn't know. That's where you want to be. Yeah. But oftentimes, and this is the dangerous person, is the selective listener. Selective listener is a very smart person. They've already figured out their narrative. They understand why they feel that way. And when they listen to other people, they're simply picking certain portions of what they have to say to support their cause, but they don't listen to everything they have to say. They're just listening to the parts that will support their agenda. And that's, that person is dangerous. And, and you, you really have to sort that, sort that out. And if you have that sort of person, you either um, you've got to call them on it or you've got, you got to get rid of them because they can really, really screw up an organization. I, I've seen it. And I think the, I think there's, there's a challenge for people as they advance in their career, they're considered being an expert in something. You know, you're an expert in marketing or you're an expert in brand or finance or whatever it happens to be, that you're less likely to be open to being wrong and to being like, hey, I hadn't looked at it that way. That's right. And I think that's been the most valuable. I see that in executives that I work for and I see that in executives that I've worked with um, where if they have that ability to be certain about their point of view up until they have better information, I think that's just crucial to success. 
Well, as I said, if you, if you can, if people listening to this uh, podcast, they can mentally think of where people fit into those three groups and they'll have people that fit in each one of them. And again, the passive listener, the problem with that is you just have to, your time is precious and repeating yourself more than once or twice gets, that's, that's an issue, but at least they're not being destructive. Uh, but the selective listener can really be a problem for an organization. Now that you're, you've been a board member uh, in multiple different situations and now you're an angel investor, is there something that you look for in how people communicate and how they tell stories, whether they're a CEO or other management, how they express their point of view? I think one of the most important things that I learn when I'm in this situation that you're talking about is um, the quality of questions that a person asks, especially if I don't know the person. You know, I'm, I'm, it's kind of a first situation because, you know, after a while you sort of figure out what the person's all about. But early on, um, you know, you have some people who want to just talk all the time. They think they're God's gift to the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that gets pretty old pretty fast. Um, yeah, I'm the smartest person in the room, and I'm going to convince you of that. That's a real turnoff for me. Um, I like to hear the person who, you know, whatever the topic is that's being discussed, you, they've listened to what's been said. And they've, you can tell they've formed, kind of they've pondered it quickly, but they've thought about it. And they come back and ask questions that are either clarification questions or questions that indicate that they've grasped the core topic and now they're digging deeper because they've grasped it. And they're, they're trying to get more uh, granular information, primarily to make sure that they believe that this person that's speaking has that detail necessary to support whatever they're talking about. That's the sort of person that, that I'm attracted to because they've been an active listener. They clearly have a bright uh, brain working and the quality of their questions um, let you know that they're, they're really committed to whatever the topic is. Do you look for that in CEOs that you're going to work with? Because you work with oh, yeah. CEOs from all sorts of different angles. Absolutely. How good of questions do they ask as opposed to spending all their time convincing you they're smart? They wouldn't be in the role if they weren't relatively smart. There's a difference between someone giving you their elevator speech or selling and someone actually engaging and almost in, engaging in that sort of like rigor of back and forth. Is that something that you experience a lot as an investor and a board member? Yeah, I, I, uh, debate is debate seems to go away in the world we live in today. But yeah. uh, when you're when you're in a business setting and you're trying to figure out what's the best strategy, debate is is terrific. Yeah, it's the way it should work. Uh, you know what are what are what are the options, and uh, which is the best given everybody has limited resources and only so much time. So there's, there's the financial resources, you can't do everything. And then there's the other issue of, well, if we wait another six months, we'll have better information. Okay, that's, that's a great luxury to have, but depending upon the situation, you've got to make a decision. And uh, you don't have six months to wait. Is there anything you, you've done as a CEO or as a board member where 
you know, there'll be experts or people in roles that are not at the board level or not at the um, C-suite level where <clears throat> early on, I think Carter Melton was actually somebody that encouraged me to always tell truth to power. But it's difficult for a lot of people to do. Is there anything you do to draw people out if you think the information they have is going to be really valuable to help you make a decision? Yeah, I mean, I think the if you're talking to a person and, and you're value, you know, they're a subject matter expert, um, it's 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 not that tough if you're open. Uh, it's, it it goes like this, you know, Steve, I got a tough decision to make, and. Uh, I'm trying to get as much input as I possibly can. And I know you don't n normally attend our chief operating officer meetings or whatever it is, but I already know, because I've talked to everybody in the organization, that you know a lot about this. Now help me understand what I don't know. It's up, it's up to the, it's up to the uh, leader to be open and yeah. give permission, if you will, so the other person feels at ease and shares with you their knowledge and they don't feel intimidated because, you know, they're four levels down in the or whatever it is in the organization. It's up to the leader to put, to make that happen. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying about active listening. And I think it's something that, that CEOs and leaders, um, it's one of the most important qualities and not everyone has it to the degree that I've seen you demonstrated or I've seen certain leaders demonstrated where they can talk to someone that's a subject matter expert or someone that's, you know, much younger in the organization and make them feel safe enough to give their honest opinion. And I think that ability to listen. So do you think listening as, as a board member, that sort of active listening and as a board member or CEO has served you well? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about that. At the end of the day, you have to be comfortable in your own skin. You're not worried about what people think about you and you just be open and straightforward and you'd be amazed. It just, it knocks down lots of doors. That, it's good. That's great advice. I think it's great advice for anyone young in their career. It's great advice for anyone that's in leadership for the first time. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it seems really simple, but not enough people practice it in this day and age. So I'm glad we got to talk about that. There are plenty of examples of, of uh, other organizational culture. Yeah. It's my way or the highway. Yeah. And, and that's that's someone who thinks they've got all the answers. And that's that's a blind spot because as we started this conversation a little earlier, uh, you don't have all the answers. I think that wisdom, you know, whether it's a CEO or any kind of leader, knowing you don't have all the answers is going to lead to much greater success than you. I think it's almost an insecurity if you think you have to be a big deal all the time and be in charge, quote unquote. And, you know, I think that's something for anyone listening to this. I think that's something that if you're getting into leadership or, or you're about to join a C-suite, it's your first shot at it. Be open, listen more than you talk is sometimes a great thing to do. It helps you getting everybody in the same boat. People are willing to follow someone they know that is thinking about them and not just by themselves and trying and it's asking for their input and wants to hear what they think. Uh, those, over time, that can really help you in terms of getting everyone to focus on the same common objectives. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think telling people what to do and being the smartest person in the room is half as good as a way to demonstrate leadership than being a great listener. 
if you authentically listen to people, you're going to get more information and you're going to think of something you never thought of. So I, I learned that from you guys. So I appreciate the, uh, the object lessons that I was given in many boardrooms and many rooms with you and several other leaders. So thank you for that. Um, so I have a couple of questions about brand and what you look for um, in a brand story as an investor, because you're right now you're an investor, you're still a board member. And when you're joining a board where you're going to invest in a company, it's a big decision, I'm sure, because you're going to give up a lot of your time and a lot of energy. Is there anything that you look for in that brand story? Again, I try to keep it as simple as I can, um, but it, it's, it's complicated, but it's very, very important. Yeah. Essentially, that brand is making a promise to the customers that it's doing business with. That's the core thought. And so you want to understand what that promise is. And then as you, based upon whatever your understanding of that is, then certainly as a board member, um, and also as a marketer, uh, you want to look at the organization functionally in terms of whether or not that organization is designed and is functioning in a way to deliver on that brand promise. And does everyone in the organization understand that? And usually there are some gaps there. I'll give you a quick example. Sure. That'd be uh, great. I've worked now for, um, it's hard to believe, I've been on the uh, board of directors for the Rainbow Corporation in California for uh, two decades. Wow. Which is Pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. But um, Rainbird is a uh, global leader in irrigation business. Yeah. Their brand promise is the intelligent use of water. And it is an engineering manufacturing company. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. These guys from MIT and Stanford, and they're just brilliant engineers. And uh, But their focus is on how can we provide water the, the least amount of water necessary to accomplish the goal um, so that we conserve water and also energy because energy, getting the water to where whatever it's got to do takes energy, uh, whether that's solar, wind, electric, they're into all that. And so their whole, their whole reason for being is conservation of natural resources. And, the company, I mean, it's, it's just built into their DNA. And it's just, it's fabulous to watch. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, that, that is a great read on how important brand promise is. And do you look for that in each organization that you work with, that core? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you don't have some sort of core promise of what you're all about, and if people don't buy into it, then essentially you've got chaos. <laughs> yeah, I agree. With Controlled that. chaos. Controlled chaos. Well, I because everybody's everybody's def defining whatever that is for themselves. Yeah, and right. they're off to the races. Yeah, and if you don't have, and that, I've seen plenty of companies like that. Gosh, I've worked for companies like that. It's a and, uh, it's an interesting. It's like being part of the rodeo. You just don't don't know what's going to happen next. So it's getting back to the idea of getting everybody in the boat together rowing in the same direction. Yeah. Not easy to do, but if you can do it, you can absolutely crush almost all your competition. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Hey, something I've noticed about your career as I was getting ready for this conversation, and I've always thought this having worked with you, is 
that every brand you choose to work with and every board you've been on, and it's it's pretty phenomenal. You have a real focus on helping people. Do you have you been conscious about that? Uh, yeah, I've I've been pretty conscious about that. I um, I my career is kind of goes two different directions. I was younger than it, most people in the room most of my life. I was very ambitious and I was willing to move and I moved all over the United States several times um, and eventually ended up in Harrisonburg. And when I got to Harrisonburg, uh, obviously I was still had a lot of responsibility. Yeah. I didn't have a two hour commute. I didn't, all of a sudden I had a different type of life and that's when I kind of started switching direction and uh, said, how can I, take what I've learned and try to help other organizations. And that took me not so much board work, uh, a few boards, but not that much because I was still pretty busy with Rocco, but getting involved with nonprofits, getting involved with um, public service. um, It was time to give back. And I've been doing that probably for the last couple of decades. Yeah, and I think I think you've had a very big impact on this community overall with all the giving back you've done. And I think it sets a great example too. I mean, you've done it. I've seen you, I've been around you when you're when you're providing leadership to nonprofits. And you work hard. I mean, <laughs> you know, you work harder than some people that are getting paid. I've actually seen that for myself. So the passion you bring to it and the energy you bring to it, I think, is a real credit. Well, done. I appreciate that. I it's just the way I'm wired. You know, <laughs> if I'm in, I'm in. Well, it's it's great. You know, it's fun to be around. So, I had a question, another question about board members because I've worked with a lot of boards and board members, and I think this might apply to investors too. They don't have a lot of contact with direct consumer interactions. Do you depend on stories that? that the CEO or management pass on to you? How do you get information about, is that promise being delivered? Well, you obviously get information from, um, you know, your quarterly meetings or how else, you know, you're getting updates on the business. Um, there are uh, metrics that are in place now, uh, whether they're uh, external metrics in terms of uh, market share, uh, customer approval, uh, complaints. Uh, if you're in uh, glass, is it glass ceiling or whatever yeah, it is? Right. You know, yep. feedback from disgruntled employees. There's a host of different uh, ways to get information on that front. Um, but typically, what I, one of the things I do is I always go to visit customers. You know, uh, you know if it's if it's the grocery stores, that's pretty. You know. I, I kind of still know my way around that, but with like with Rainbird, it's uh, they have uh, various distributors. They also have golf courses. They have uh, 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 Home Depot, Lowe's. You go out and see what's really happening in the marketplace, um, and you come back and you know you call people on it if you say you know if they're giving you everything is roses. So well, I mean, I gotta tell you, that's not what I saw. And you only have to do that once or twice, and they realize that I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> There's a disconnect somewhere. No, you've got to, and plus you got to, you got to be a consumer of the product. Yeah. You know, whatever it is. I think. Do you think you got that from your marketing background? Because I'm not sure every board member is is 
testing the product and going out and experiencing that and and working their way through it, the it probably so but it's that they should yeah i agree i mean if they're going to be as i say if you're in you're in well i think that's a testament to you that if you're in you're in and that's something very unique about you um but i that's great to hear because that's something that i think as a marketer i would always wish that board members and and people on leadership teams would be out there testing the product and using it and being a customer because we're you know the reports can often say one thing and the on the ground experience can give you a different perspective yeah it's very true um the other thing i always ask management about because they won't volunteer it usually is uh, i want to know what their service levels are yeah yeah how often do they deliver whatever the customer asked for on time and without any uh, uh, backlog items on the list, because that tells you uh, not only is it, and if they can do that above 90%, they've got a competitive advantage. Um, and if they're not at least at 90 or above, then it tells you that internally they got some functional problems. Yeah, and that's a great, that is, that is a powerful question. And I think it's a very- Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it, from a customer standpoint, you know, they. They buy six items and they have four of them delivered and two backlog. Yep. They're ticked off. Yeah, absolutely they are. Because customers, it's all about them. They they have their perspective and that's what that's what matters. They're they're good customers and there's I call them A, B, and C customers. And you really have to understand which are the best and which are the most profitable and uh, and which are the real pain in the rear end customers. And you've got all of them, but if you know who the best ones are, they get absolutely, you try to do a hundred percent with them. And uh, I remember when I was at Rocco, one of those customers uh, who were in that category was uh, Giant Foods out of uh, uh, Washington, DC. They were one of our very best customers. And uh, I went down to the distribution center one day and I was talking to the guy in charge of distribution. I said, just to be clear, if Giant calls us and asks us to send a truck tonight, because we had our own trucks, and ask our driver to drive it backwards, that's what we're going to do. If I have to carry it there myself on my back, that's what we're going to do. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do we understand each other? <laughs> Are we clear? Yeah, that's, well, that's what it takes. You know, it takes no, that. But I, really, customer service uh, levels are reveal quite a lot about how well the company's functioning. Yeah, and I think one of the, uh, some very wise leader in the past uh, told me that. You know, those are the I always ask questions like that as a marketer and get as many great, good, solid answers as I can that they'll give me. Now, obviously, if a you know a board member can get a get some data that I might not be able to get my hands on, but. You know, you cannot fix a sales or customer service problem with marketing. It's usually a customer service problem is uh, is usually very much a communications problem and or within the organization, different functional areas have reward structures that are in conflict with each other. Yeah. And so people are doing what they is in their best interest and the organization is not focused on the customer. And what brings that all together at the end of the day is what your customer service level is. Right. All the great brands, you can look at them and be like, well, the customer, they start with customer service and work backwards. 
you know, you know, they're talking about it every single day on multiple levels. That's why we're in businesses to uh, produce products for people that want our products and are willing to pay us money for. <laughs> right. Here, here. So uh, with all the industries that you've worked in, you know, uh, whether that's, you know, as a, an, as an executive or as a board member, it, I, I was just curious, which industry do you think you, has kept you up the most at night? I work with the health, with the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, with RMH. And uh, I've also um, just, um, this year I'll complete my uh, term responsibility as a, uh, I was the chair of the uh, University of Physicians group in, at UVA. So I've kept my, uh, I've kept my finger in the healthcare world for some time. My, uh, my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse. I grew up in all that world. And um, it is a extraordinarily complex uh, industry. And uh, it has lots of issues. Um, and a lot of those we saw in, as the pandemic occurred, it just stressed something that was already somewhat stressed. And so um, I've spent a lot of time uh, doing whatever I can to try to uh, help reduce some of those stresses. And that's kept me up at night. Yeah, I bet. That, that's the industry I've worked in across a lot of different industries from CBG to you know, nonprofits, government agencies, and healthcare, I think, Carrie and I were talking about this, is the most complex industry because of the regulation, because also because it's such a direct line to people's lives. And, and they're in a moment of crisis. And there's so many factors from the reimbursement factors, the quality of care, there's so much that goes into it that I think if you can work in healthcare, you can work in almost any industry. Well, I think the, uh, you know, the, this, it's a good question, good point. Um, people have been talking about uh, healthcare through, uh, you know, Zoom and video and all yeah, that for right. years. Yeah. Uh, and nothing ever happened. It was, it, was, it was promised for the future, which, of course, increases access dramatically. And the reason nothing ever happened is they could never get the reimbursement figured out with the insurance companies. So it was a loser. Yeah. It just won't work. Pandemic comes along. Guess what? Accelerated that technology by at least five years, if not more, to the present. And now that's going to be something that will be available on a going basis. Uh, so that was a good thing that came out of the pandemic. Sometimes sure. there are that you know out of every crisis, there's usually some silver linings. Right, but that that's going to be a that'll be a plus, especially for people who are in rural areas or people that. The key thing is a lot of people don't have transportation. Yeah. Uh, I know that, you know, I also work with the free clinic in Harrisonburg. And, uh, you know, when that, I guess it was what, maybe five or six months ago, but anyway, they, they, they announced they were going to close it. I was sick to my stomach because uh, I know what, how important that organization is, number one. And number two, uh, it's next to the bus line. Yeah. So there was a way for people to get there who didn't have normal transportation as we think about it. Huge issue. Uh, I was very pleased to see that you know, 
the crowd that started a long time ago, they've started all up again. So yeah, that is good to see. They just opened their doors and they're back in business again. And I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that because there is, there's a great need for uh, not only low cost available healthcare, but healthcare that people can actually access because they can get to it. We take it for granted that we can get in a car and go to the emergency room, whatever we do. A lot of people can't do that. Yeah. And I, I think most people that haven't worked in healthcare don't know that, you know, that, that, that access is a big barrier to good care. Huge. Which is another good thing about the, um, um, being able to use video for, to, for, you know, for a lot of things on healthcare, not everything, but, uh, a lot can be done there. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about, you know, on this podcast, we're talking to people from all sorts of diff different industries about brand brand story, but also about marketing and about, um, management. And I, I just kind of like to let the conversations go where they, where they want to. And the idea is, I think people have a lot of things to learn from each other from different industries. So you've worked in very disparate industries. Do you think being able to bring what you learned in healthcare or the experiences in healthcare to other industries has helped or vice versa? I think from, from the standpoint of getting back to uh, what's, what's the reason for being for the company, i.e., what's the reason for being for the brand, Yeah, those link directly together. Um, you know, when you start talking about uh, different strategies to build the brand, you know, whether it's line extensions or a new advertising campaign or uh, secondary placement in the store, you know, we go down the list. Uh, I think that's getting really into the basic elements of brand, you know, brand marketing and what's going to be our pricing strategy. I don't think those necessarily translate across industries the same way. Um, uh, some of it does, but not all the time. But the, the core reason for being, that's, that's, a, that's a, the essence of what branding is all about and supporting that and getting consumer. And, and obviously, it has to add value to the consumer. Uh, and I'd argue that's true for any organization, uh, figuring that out. Um, you know, we were at the at the uh, the free clinic. You know, the the name suggests that it has value, uh, but the tagline was compassionate care, and that's what made the clinic unique. Is because uh, in their case, uh, practically everyone who came through that door. Uh, had chronic Ill, several chronic illnesses. They were taking umpteen pills. What you know? These people were sick, and it's not a twenty-minute discussion with the doctor. And next patient, please. It's it could be an hour, an hour and a half with one patient, trying to just understand all the stuff that was issues for them. And um, and then helping them, and it provides tremendous value not only to the patient but also to the community because that patient could have been over at the emergency room using the most expensive resources in the hospital, yeah, and never finally getting to the final thing because they don't they cannot spend that much time figuring out all the problems a person has. Yeah, they're just not set up for it. I guarantee you, everyone in, in that organization, in this case, the free clinic all understood what their mission was. 
I'm sure you've given a lot of advice to management teams and even to other CEOs or board members. What do you think is the advice you've given most often around brand? As a rule, I try, I think it's critical that the, uh, whether it's sprinklers or it's Oreos or it's whatever it is, that you understand what the consumers sees as the value that you're presenting to them. And it differs. These are crazy examples, but they're, they'll make the point, you know, with, uh, with Rainbird, it's conservation. With uh, with Grey Poupon, it was snob appeal. Yeah, right. I'm not going to pay four times as much for Grey Poupon than I am yellow mustard. Well, you had to create an image to make that happen. With Del Monte, huge company, uh, it was a very different proposition. Uh, they weren't charging a huge price premium, but the consumer was looking for uh, convenience, they were looking for, for variety, uh, nutrition, and obviously taste. So you had to figure out a way to commute all four elements of what the consumer was looking for. The trick is once you figure it out, it's not easy to figure out sometimes, but once you figure it out, you obviously you figure it out by talking to the consumer. I mean, this is not, you go talk to the customer. We used to call it market research. Now they call it customer discovery. That's the, <laughs> yeah. that's the new millennial term. Yeah, but it's market research. It's market research. But the key is once you figure it out, then how do you constantly figure out how you can strengthen that and make it better and better and better? And don't get distracted on some wild goose chase. And that's important because there's always people in the organization that get say, well, we've been doing this forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing something forever. Just figure out how to do it better and better and better. Especially if it works. Because that's what they're, that's the value. And, and what you, so what you got to be careful about is the person who wants to try to reinvent the wheel and create a whole new value stream. That may work. And that's called uh, an extension of your brand into another market. And you can do research to see whether or not the consumer would buy into that or not, or whether they would see that's a disconnect. And uh, there are ways to do that to determine it. But you don't automatically go do that because you spent all this time and energy building the brand and that image, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and the attributes of the brand. You don't just uh, throw that out the window and head in another direction. You're always trying to figure out how to make your brand relevant to the consumer today, not forgetting what the basic attributes and values are of your brand. I couldn't agree with that more. And what problem you solve for the consumer like what value are you creating in their lives and you know staying centered in that is incredibly important right and you know in today's world uh, convenience yeah time we is of the essence so uh, you do th a lot of times in in the food business you do a lot of things in packaging to represent the same product in a way that provides greater convenience to the consumer. Uh, so it takes less time, less preparation, less cleanup, you name it. Uh, but your product fundamentally hasn't changed. You just figured out a way to present it in a way that makes it more convenient. I mean, that's making your product more useful, more convenient, easier to use and easier yeah. for the customer to buy is what it's all about. Yep. The best marketing advice and the best brand advice is almost always the most fundamental 
So, you know, I think your approach, um, from everything I've seen and, and, you know, you and I've talked in the past is, is really, uh, right on, right on the nose. You know, you're, everything that you've done with brands over the years, I think comes back to the strengths of knowing who the customer is and knowing what problems you're solving for them. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, I try, you know, everybody says, keep it simple. Yeah. There's a lot, I mean, it's obviously pretty complicated. Lots of stuff are pretty complicated, but there's certain things that you have to just, they're kind of your core principles. Yep. And you, you keep trying to apply those and that's, <laughs> that's what you do. And surround, and surround yourself with brilliant people. That's yep. helpful too. <laughs> that's a, it's a great strategy for success. <laughs> Let me ask you one final question. Cause I'll get you out of here in the hour that I promised. So knowing what you know now, what piece of advice would you give to a young, your younger self? There was a time when I was younger, I always had the ability to, to listen to the, gain the information, filter it through my head and come back and give people what I thought was the answer, the answer. Right. And I was pretty quick at it, quicker than most people. Uh, and a lot of times I was right. But that's not the point. The point is, there's two points. One, there are times when I miss something, getting back to what I said earlier. That's why I'm a big believer in this, because I was that person. The other problem is, uh, this really was a big problem. Uh, and I actually had someone pull me aside and explain it to me, because I, I was blind. I didn't see it. Uh, a lot of times, I was the younger person in the room. And I, for whatever reason, didn't have a filter. Uh, and I, so I was telling people, me cases 10, 15 years older than I am, uh, what they should do to change what they've been doing. Right. Well, that's a threat. By definition, it's a threat. Well, I didn't see it that way. I was just solving the problem. So if I could tell myself, my younger self, uh, something, it would be giving the same advice I was giving earlier, you know, Listen carefully, ask good questions, uh, don't assume that you know everything, and clearly assess your audience that you're talking to and have that guide your uh, conversation in terms of, of uh, reacting to the group. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's something that, uh, that all people who are young in their careers need to hear is that it isn't necessarily to come great to come across as the smartest person in the room on every conversation. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you got a lot to learn if you just sit and listen. Yeah, you do. And, um, that's what I would have changed, but I learned along the way. That's, that's what the, hopefully that's what this podcast is about. So that some, somebody will listen to it and say, yeah, I kind of identify with that. And, Maybe I'll try that out. Yeah, I'm hoping so. I think I think you know people will listen to this, and especially people who are younger in their marketing career. And uh, you know, there's some really great advice in what we've discussed today. And you know, maybe they've heard it before, but hearing it from someone that's accomplished as much as you, I think it's really important. So, thank you so much for doing this today. This has been a blast talking to you. Good. It's been fun. Yeah.